Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the mid-alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello everyone, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but I bumped into a friend of mine on this freezing morning today and I said, how are you? And she said, well, you know, I'm so tired that I've got to go for a root canal this afternoon and I'm seeing it very much as downtime. (laughs) Actively looking forward to it. And I had a very hard relate to that. It's like at least for two hours, no one can ask her to do anything. They will. But, you know, she's going to be able to either not reply or just say, I'm having a root canal. Please leave me the fuck alone. Has she ever had a root canal? Jesus. What, does she know what she's in for? Yeah. I I think, I think that, I just think that it just feels like respite, however bad it is. No, well, I mean, there is some lying, there is a lying down element. There's a lot of lying down. Let's face it, that's fine. How are you, Em? Well, I'm absolutely fine, but I've actually got groin strain, groin pain. That's elegant. It's like, hi, how are you? I feel like I I need to say this to people now. I'd quite like the word groin. It's quite an effective conversation (laughs) stopper, isn't it? Where do you go from there? Nowhere, hopefully. Stop (laughs) speaking to me, me and my groin strain. Is it making you limp? I have noticed if I'm not like concentrating, I am limping. It's brilliant. The limping, (laughs) groiny, grown up woman in the park. If you see her, do not speak to her because she just wants to be left alone. Anyway, our next guest is a member of the DDC, the Dead Dad Club, like Annabelle and I. Sadly, Carrie Ad Lloyd has been a member since she was 15 when her father died suddenly. After years of floundering, she has taken her grief and turned it into a beautiful living thing by talking about it on her award-winning podcast, Griefcast, and writing about it in her wonderful book, You Are Not Alone. She talks to people about their experiences of grief and death, and in doing so has become a friend to hundreds of thousands, creating a gentle grief guide on how to navigate this most personal and painful of experiences. We are delighted to have her on the podcast. Cariad, how are you? <laughs> oh, I love well, that you're I'm, laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely fine. But this morning, my child, my eldest child asked me to make her a clay air dry unicorn lamp which was so, it was a gift and it was so complicated that I swear to God, you would need to be like a trained sculpture artist to do this. <laughs> I tried to start with the easiest thing, a butterfly. We made it. I burst out laughing because it looked like one of those be- before after memes. Like it just looked nothing like the picture. And I was really laughing like, this is so funny, right? And I looked at her and she just said, I didn't think this day could get worse. <laughs> and so I have had to promise dropped off at school and I had to say would you like me to try and make one while you're at school it's better and she said yes so now I've got so much to do at some point today I have to try and make a miniature tiny air dry clay butterfly to go with the unicorns and the flowers that we're making I mean and obviously I'm, I'm gonna do it but talking of things you do well thank you so much for your book you are not alone thank it you. very much made us think about our own experiences of grief my mm. father died sort of slowly but then suddenly the way that mm. happens in 2001 and yours when Emily uh, 2011 or something yes was it? 2011 
and 2012. Know, and we thought about how few resources there were and how little we felt able to talk about it and therefore how little we did talk about it yeah. and therefore how we ended up in a bit of trouble later on. And and so, you know, you, you talk in your book quite interestingly about speaking the language of death, don't mm. you? And how that can be integrated into our living lives. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that can be helpful? Yeah, I just think... <laughs> We just don't talk about it. <laughs> that's yeah. that's it, really. And I sort of say in the book as well, like, because we all grow up with parents not talking about it, you, you don't learn it. Uh, the example I often said on the podcast, Griefcast, was that, I don't know if you remember the first time you were a small child and, like, someone brought a baby around and then you'd hear, oh, it's so lovely. Or like, and I remember thinking, oh, we all have to say nice things about the baby. Okay, right, that's, oh, right. And then, you know, I remember my my mum saying or people's just coming up to my mum after my dad had died when I was 15 and sort of saying I heard chin up chin up and she'd go thanks and then they'd walk off and I would go was that about my dad was that about death I don't know so I think we don't grow up talking about it we don't hear people talking about it or we hear very sort of snippety things so we're just not practiced and that's the big thing I wanted to do first with the podcast and then with the book is just to say to people you shouldn't naturally be good at this. I mean, we've just been talking about the things we're not naturally good at. Of course, if I practiced air dry clay every day, I'm sure I would get there. And it's the same with talking about death. When I started the podcast in 2016, I had years of my own grief, but there were lots of things that I hadn't talked about. I hadn't talked about child loss with anyone. I hadn't talked about baby loss with anyone because I hadn't experienced it. And then through doing the podcast and realising just having these conversations, practicing them, sitting and being uncomfortable, saying to people, I'm really sorry, I I don't know what to say at the moment and I'm struggling and I'm like, give me a second and I'll help trying to find my way through this conversation. I sort of realised like, oh, anyone can anyone can do this it's not it's not like I've got a special skill because my dad died early it's just like I've just had a bit more years of practice and a general interest in talking about this but I'm sure as all your listeners and you yourself know everyone will experience a death at some point and and everyone has also had people in their lives who've been grieving and hasn't quite known what to say like mm. we've all been in both camps most of us and so it's okay to not know what to say. And it's also okay to feel like, God, everyone's so shit. Why is no one saying the right thing? Yeah. We just need to start from there of like, God, this is really hard to talk about. How do we do it? Let's start using the word dead more when we are talking about it. So with kids, I'm a huge, um, you know, not fan. I can't think of the word. I'm too tired. <laughs> proponent of that, of like saying to children, you know, granddad is dead. Like and just, rather than granddad is in heaven, he's or in heaven. Or he's gone the, away. He's sleeping. He's, he's watching on a over farm. you. He's being very well looked after. <laughs> just yesterday, like my youngest one just said something. I don't have a grandpa, and I was like, "No, you, you don't have a grandpa." Like ready for this. And my eldest was like across the room. She went, "No, they're both dead." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, that's how I brought her up." But I, I want them to be able to say it like it's not a terrifying thing that somebody's died because. When you make it terrifying, when you don't even say the word, you also make people afraid of their own death. You know, like yes. this is, oh my God, what will happen? And it's like, well, we're all go- it's all going to happen. So the sooner you can get them to start using the correct phrasing. And I, you know, I'm not saying sit down and be like, look, they've got stage four cancer and it's spread to this Mr. Time. Like, you know, you don't have to go into details, but you, but using the words. And I think that helps your own grief as well. When you start just saying, yeah, my dad is dead. Your the grandpa is dead. He died a long time ago. And it's sad. 
that's okay. It also yeah. helps, I think, mm. doesn't it, to distill the panic that yeah. we feel about it. And I think what can happen, and I've certainly been guilty of this, is if someone has a huge and meaningful and terrible loss, I have disappeared mm. because I have thought that my presence might be an irritant, mm. that I would say the wrong thing, that I would be inappropriate, that I would do the opposite of helping. And so I think if you could talk to us a bit, because you're so helpful in your book about what to say, you know, understanding our limitations mm. um, in terms of, of, of helping and offering some solace, but also knowing what we perhaps can offer, what it's okay to say. I always start with saying it's really hard. Everybody has a case in their life and they're like, oh, I didn't do great there, did I? <laughs> like, like even me, even me, queen of the talking about death has had people <laughs> have gone oh, why didn't I just say, why didn't I just ask them about it? Like I panicked, I panicked. So the first thing I always say is it's hard. You haven't had any practice, that's okay. And the other thing I think is really important is people act like you get one shot at death conversation, which I find really strange. They act like I blew my chance. I saw them and in the in the high street and I crossed the road. I blew my chance. Oh my that's God. It. And you're like, you're so right. You, you can go I've back. missed the boat, it's yeah. all over. Grief lives with you forever. So the great yeah. thing about it, supporting someone, is you can come back to them and say, I was really shit last week. I'm so sorry. I saw you and I just absolutely panicked. And I just had to think about it. And I've realized that's so unhelpful. So I just want to say I am here. And I don't know if that's helpful or it's not helpful, but I want you to know that I am desperate to help you. And I'm here. You know, you can set, you can come back and rectify things. Like I have had yeah. people do that to me because obviously I've been in the club such a long time the dead dad club or the, the grief club as we say on my show and so I had people contact me like you know I got Facebook messages <laughs> saying like from school friends being like oh um my dad just died I'm in my mid-20s and I suddenly realized how shit we were when you were at school and I was like mm. yeah that's okay like I get it you how could you have known and so I think it's perfectly okay to go back to someone and also, you know, obviously it's always context. Everyone's grief is very different and people want different things. And absolutely mm. you will encounter someone that, do that doesn't want your presence, but it's okay to check. <laughs> it's yeah, okay yeah, to say, would you rather be left alone? You know, there's so many ways to communicate with people now. Like you can send a WhatsApp, you can email, you can send a DM. So I'm a big believer in saying, just thinking of you in a text or a WhatsApp. That's very calm and neutral. They don't have to reply. The big thing as well, like don't ask them. Don't say, what can I do? Because it's it's too much. So saying to someone, how are you today? is a really great one because it, it narrows the perimeters down to like a very like, well, actually today I'm all right. Or today's not a bad day or today is really awful. And also just turning up and being present with someone. So I always say to people like, it depends how close you are to the friend. You know, we've all got friends that like, you sort of stop and say hello, but you, you don't really know them. Obviously, if you turned up at the house, they might be a bit weirded out why you've turned up. Um, but making sure you do stop and say, I heard about your mum, dad, brother, sister. I just want to say, I'm so sorry. What an awful thing to have happened. That's terrible. And I think people feel like they need to add something to that sentence. So yeah. we all feel like we want to fix it. We want to say, yeah. and I'm sure you'll be okay. Or uh, it was, a, they had a good inning, all of this stuff that we say, you have to get good at silence when you talk about grief and death. So you have to be okay with saying to someone, I heard your dad died. I'm so sorry. That's awful. We all, and then we feel, yeah, fixated. everyone panics. Everyone goes, yeah. oh God, I must say, let them hear you say that and let them just go, they are hearing how shit I'm feeling. And then, you know what, if you wait, they'll probably just go, thanks. 
And then you'll mm, probably mm. just change the subject. Like, that's the thing is we all think, oh my God, what will happen? It, I promise you, no one wants to have like a massive grief conversation most of the time, but it's nice to be acknowledged that someone you deeply loved is dead. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that sometimes we were just talking earlier because Emily's got to write a condolence letter. Yeah. And mm. we can get really hung up on the idea that we have to say something meaningful, that we have to, as you say, attempt to fix it, that mm. we have to somehow serve up a precious memory yeah. of this person who has gone. And that's hard. Yeah, and I haven't seen this person for about 15 years, but oh, his father's yeah, yeah. died and we all hung out a lot in childhood. So I knew his father. So I know that I know his... I know that I know him and I know him yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But it's that, it's that awful kind of like, hi, I'm only writing to you because your father has died. But also I want to say, you know what, I remember him. And yeah. I think I remember when people wrote to me about my father and it was just a, a thing that was just like, I, I remember your father being in the world and mm. that was a good thing. And that's, and, and that's a nice thing, I think. When I you know, find the letters, it always moves me, the people who got in, who bothered yeah, to write, you know. Yeah, I've never, and you know, I've done nearly 200 episodes of the grief cast and I never met anyone who was like, oh, I didn't like that condolence letter. <laughs> like, everybody was always like, you know, sometimes you're overwhelmed by them or you didn't reply yeah. or, you know, but mostly people were like, oh, it, it was lovely to know that, because what you're doing when you write a condolence letter is you're reminding someone that we are, there are a million versions of us. You know, there's the father-son relationship, there's the father-friend of the son, you know. And when you remind someone, oh, I knew them like this, you add a little piece of that person back for them. And mm. they are sitting with their grief as a child has lost their parent. And they're like, oh yes, they were a father figure to that person. They were a friend to that person. They were this. And you sort of start rebuilding that person in a memory. And you don't have to, like you said, serve up the most, you know, elegant, eloquent, witty, oh, they did this for me. And actually, by the way, they gave me the key to a golden treasure. Like, it doesn't have to be epic. It just has to be, I really remember them being such a lovely person and I was always happy to see them. And yeah. you must be missing them. And, mm. you know, I send you all my love. Like, Quick, it, I'm it, writing this down yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it could be but as simple it's funny as that. He hearing you say that makes me feel really emotional because I realise that saying that is meaningful. Yeah, Really is, meaningful. Yeah. It doesn't have to be lyricism mm. does it or no. an anecdote that's like pre-packaged and delivered it's the thing we like we panic because we don't like talking about it and it makes us feel uncomfortable we think we're doing something wrong whereas actually the problem is grief and death are uncomfortable because it's sad to realize that we are in you know creatures with a timeline and so that's what you're fighting against but i think we go oh i've this is horrible so i need to find something that's going to make this feel better but if you get this is the only mental switch i've done in in all the work i've done on on grief is the mental switch i now go oh that feeling that's uncomfortable just sit with it it's okay you're not doing anything mm. wrong and yeah. i the best thing i interviewed rob delaney when his book came out a heart that works about the loss of his son henry and he said something to me which really stuck with me which he said when you tell someone like t terrible, terrible news, you know, or, or you know something terrible about someone, all you're really asking is for four seconds before they reply or try and fix you. And if you give someone four seconds, if, you know, someone says, oh, my so-and-so just died or this happened. And instead of replying straight away or panicking, you sit with it for four seconds and think that person's son's just died. One, two, three, four. Your reply will be, my God, that's awful. It won't be, oh, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, like you just need to sit with people's pain for about four seconds and then trust it's not your pain. It's not your life that's happening to someone else. They just need you to sit with them for four seconds so they're not alone holding this horrific mm. grief. And I think we just, we just find four seconds really difficult. But when you break mm. it down 
to just allow yourself to think and take in what someone said. And I, you know, God, you can apply that to all tragic news of any circumstances. Just let it sit with you for a little bit before you feel the need to go, well, you know, I'm, they had a good innings. They're in a better place. It's good they didn't, they weren't in pain for too long. You know, all of these things we say, which are chin about up. us. Yeah, chin up. That's about us trying to make us feel better. And what yes. you have to understand is the person can't feel better. Someone has died. So you don't need to try and make them feel better. That Take that job off the table because mm-hmm. someone's dead. You can't bring them back. That's the only thing they would really make them feel better. So take it off the table and just mm-hmm. let them be sad and then trust that you are not going to be damaged by that sadness. You're okay. Because, you know, we're humans. We feel like sadness is contagious. That's totally yeah. normal. It's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. And let it be there and then just say to someone god that's fucking awful <laughs> i'm so yeah. sorry mm. and then you can find your way up through after that but it is it is about breathing and trusting and not panicking all of those things that are hard mm. to do this is an advertisement from better help therapy online now you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest the tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big overwhelming worries that can flood our nights Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midalt. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash midalt. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. I, mean, I noticed a lot in, in your book, you know, we're talking about the grief process and how, you know, how it was sort of reflected with my grief process or rather my lack of process. One, in the fact that I had to make other people feel like mm. it, I, I was OK, which is so, uh, you know, people pleasing things. So I was like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. You know, yeah. you had long illness, whatever, like, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff like, uh, like, I'm OK. And of course, not being OK, but also I had a my daughter was only 11 months old when my dad died. And I think oh, that's God. in your book, isn't it? About yeah. the layer of of when you've got something like not a distraction but another kind of caring a responsibility process yeah a huge that you responsibility. delay yeah and it bit me in the ass five years later yeah and I started kind of hearing voices and I think a lot of that was like unprocessed grief and I went through that whole sort of thing with a therapist which was incredibly helpful but that's the thing the grief process is not linear there are mm-hmm. no rules right so you know as much as one would like to believe that we can fix things with words or we can fix it you know there is there is no structure and you're very good on the frustrations you had with the official grief roadmap, which is the Kubler-Ross <laughs> Yes, the guide. sort of grief myth that yeah. there's supposed to be this, we all know the stages of grief, the stages of grief, but we're to understand, I think from your book, that they weren't designed for the grieving person. They were designed for a, a dying person. Is that right? 
yeah, I get so angry <laughs> about the five stages because it, like it's it's such a strange thing that we all know it. Like, how do we all know it? Like, it's like, it's viral. Like, it's insane that you ask anyone who, about death or grief, even if they've never lost anyone, they and you say, oh, do you know about the five stages? Most people are like, oh yeah, like after someone dies, you go through these five stages. It's a lie. It's bullshit. <laughs> it's not true. As I say in the book, quite um, aggressively. So yeah, Kubler-Ross is this amazing, amazing woman. She, you know, founder of the hospice movement, changed the way we talk about death and grief, was working with AIDS patients in the 80s she's incredible however in 1969 she writes this book on death and dying which is based on her work of working with terminally ill patients so not even you know how most people die you know some people die of cancer not everyone does but that's what she was working with people with cancer and at that time in america they wouldn't use the word cancer they would use the word malignancy for everything and they wouldn't tell people they were dying so you, especially if you're a woman, you wouldn't be told. They'd tell your husband, uh, or they wouldn't tell children. And they, this. you would, they would be giving you drugs that you thought were making you better, and then you would die not knowing what the fuck was going on. So hey, 1969, there was a lot of stuff as we remember, you know, we know wasn't cool. So she came along and said, I think you should tell people they're dying. Here's my idea. She noted when you told someone they were dying they went through these five distinct stages of denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance and then she noted that also if you told them they would reach this place of acceptance and they would have inverted commas a good death because they would be able to sort out their affairs tell people they love them all the things that we now take for granted but it was always always her whole theory was people who were dying like so and that makes sense right dying has an end <laughs> like yes. if you know you're dying you're reaching that full stop here's my last day i need to do all these things but grief doesn't have the full stop like it just continues you just live with it all the time and you have to carry on being a mother or working or being a friend or you know being a wife girlfriend whatever like you have to continue being yourself and holding this horrific pain and so the five stages i, I mean i've looked into it i i cannot see when it went from dead people to living people when people went oh let's make this about grief because it, it was never designed to be about grief ever 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 and if you read any modern grief psychotherapy they all hate it everybody now says mm. it isn't it's really unhelpful it's harmful is the language i read it's harmful to the person who's grieving to put these stages on it there's no proof of it it makes people think they're doing it wrong it makes people think it's linear it makes people search for a, this magic day you know like january the 31st once i'm going to hit acceptance and i'm going to feel fine and we mm. all know that's not what happens. That's not how you grieve. No. It comes, it goes. You can delay it, as you said, if you have caring responsibilities or you can delay it just because your brain cannot cope with what has happened to you. And my dad died, oh, it's like 26 years now. I still have days where it like slaps mm. me around the face. And I think, oh my God, it was his birthday over Christmas. And I, my mum said to me, oh, he would have been 70. And it just was like a, oh, like, oh, that's so more real than, oh, he would have been 68. I don't know, it hit me and I had a real moment. I thought, oh my God, oh my God, he would have been 70. He didn't get that moment. I just had a sad day. I let it pass and I was fine. But if I was someone who believed in five stages, I would then spend months thinking there's something wrong with you. Why did you feel yeah. sad? You're so weird. Why are you still talking about him? And so mm. we need to treat ourselves with such empathy and kindness and accept like if 
someone was important to you, and I use that phrase carefully, it doesn't mean that you love them or you had a good relationship with them. If somehow they were significant to you, because you can have hated someone and still have lots of grief for them, then that will stay with you for a long time. And just ignore anybody who tells you, oh, you must be going through your five stages or you're, you know, just nah, throw it out the window. No one else is using it in modern day mm. grief psychotherapy. So you, you just, it's so unhelpful. Grief is this lifelong mess. And all that happens is you get used to carrying it and you get better mm. at carrying it. Much mm. in the same way as, as parenting, you know? Like mm. it starts the first time you become a parent, you do not know what you're doing. <laughs> and then years later, you think, oh, I've got, I've got better at this, haven't I? I do kind of get like what they need or what I'm supposed to be doing or remember to bring snacks. Like, you know, <laughs> it takes time and it takes time to learn to live without someone in the same way that it takes time to learn to live with someone. And I, I think as well, you know, exactly like you said, you know, with parenting and, and all the different stages, you know, in life, like you said, you know, your father would have been 70, but I had a piece of news the other day and I, and I, before my brain sort of like caught up, I thought, oh God, dad would find that really funny. And he's been dead 12 years, yeah. you know, and it's like, then you get that secondary shock and you think, oh God. And it's not like you don't collapse on the ground, mm. weeping and wailing and rending your garments or anything, but you, but you do feel, you do feel like you're carrying, you, you know, you, you, you're sort of in proximity to that, that sadness that you carry that because someone is gone. Yeah. I think it scares us because if you remember early grief, it's so overwhelming and we can be so upset. So any kind of sense that it might come back, is like, oh God, Am I going to be yes, in bed for six days true. because I'm oh remembering Oh my God, something. I think you're absolutely right. Anything yeah. to keep that at bay. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, it, and actually, of course, as with all mental health things, if you welcome it in and let it in for a bit, it doesn't stay very long because it doesn't need to because you've acknowledged it. It's the batting it away, the denying I'm fine, which I'm absolutely queen people pleaser. Like, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. I'm sure we're fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Like... And that I feel all- like I have to make it even better by people by telling them grisly details. Like, yeah, yeah. oh, no, 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 no. He was absolutely terrible at this, yeah, yeah. this, this, and this. Don't worry. Like, it's yeah, sort yeah. of like, it's so mad. It's like, sort of like, as if, as if somehow, yeah, the whole thing, I can't be worthy of it somehow. Anyway. Well, it's self-soothing, isn't it? It's, it's because it's very painful and it's very upsetting. And so anything you can do that makes you feel slightly more in control of it, because you weren't in control of it, and slightly less panicked about how awful it is. Like, it's, it's, it's just so normal for a human brain to be like ah, I don't like it this is horrible yuck what <laughs> yeah. can I do and like you know if you eat something disgusting you throw it away and you don't eat it again with mm. grief you're like well I know this is horrible why do I have to why is it still here like why am I yeah. still having to eat this disgusting pudding so I think like <laughs> forgive yourself for those feet like it's is again like you know the brain is a bit mad and so sometimes you have to say okay brain I see that you're panicking but we don't need to panic. That feeling is not going to destroy me. I'm not going to be, you know, like wiped out and like you said, snotting in Sainsbury's suddenly. And also if I am, that's okay. It's mm. okay. You're allowed. Somebody has died. You're allowed to feel sad about it. But we just are so desperate to get away from the feeling. And that's why the five stages persists because wouldn't yes. it be great if it was true? Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, I just have to go for these horrible feelings, but they'll go. Great. Okay, mm. cool. I And... People who are like type A, like, mm, you tell me what to do. Mm-mm, I'll follow the instructions. We're like front <laughs> yes. of the queue. I know yeah, how to do exactly. grief. Great. Brilliant. I'll do it all. Yeah, yeah. I'm very good. I'll, I'm very good. I'll listen. Um, and then you do it all and you're like, oh, shit, I still feel awful. What the hell? Like, that's not part of the deal. So it's again, it's accepting that life is not all brilliant. You will feel sad. You will have these overwhelming moments where you remember news or, you know, ugh, my dad was like obsessed with technology. 
so every time something new and it's like you know something happens where you're like wow god you you know now the iphone does this i think god he would have lost his mind over that like he would have been <laughs> he would have been talking about that for weeks and so they call it re-griefing like you're just having this re-grief where it like kind of comes up again but again it's trusting like it's not going to destroy you it's not going to overwhelm mm. you just let it be you like you said you have that day where you feel sad and then it will pass it always does there's something terrifying about the idea mm. that we could be grieving forever mm. but woven through that is the idea that what we're in fact doing is entering into a different but ongoing relationship with the person that we've lost right yeah yeah that the relationship maybe continues yeah it's just it's just it, different it's just it's just different and i remember saying to somebody after my father died you know does this get better and they mm. went it it gets different yeah mm. And it's really hard to hear. I get that. Like if you're starting the journey and so and when I speak to people sometimes and I say it's 26 years, I see their face of like, oh my God, am I <laughs> oh, going to have to talk about this? About <laughs> she's still talking about it. Shit. And I'm like, no, no, like, you know, not everybody feels like this. Not everybody makes it their life work. Like it's, you know, it's, this is a very particular example, but yes, that feeling that it's going to be like this forever is really panicky. But that's the thing I'm always trying to say to people, like it, it isn't, it changes. And the example that they use a lot is like, you have this mess of grief and it's like a big squiggly horrible mess that fills up your whole life when it happens and then you obviously your life continues and so there's more space around the grief mess but that doesn't mean the grief mess disappears or goes away there's just a lot of life around it that buffers it and that's what people mean when they say time heals time doesn't heal time allows you to have more experiences and memories that make it easier to deal with sadness which is not yes. a quippy thing to say but I think it is really important to accept like everything has changed your life is completely different and you will be grieving a life where you didn't know this pain like that's mm. also in there like you you're sad the person doesn't exist and you're sad you know this crap I don't want to know this I don't know that yeah. people die and this is how it feels <laughs> like I want to go back to the days where I was like oh I think I'll be fine when my parents die or you know like all of this stuff yeah. people tell them you often hear don't you people saying when I wake up in the morning, just for a second, I think yeah. everything's okay. Yeah, it's so common because, again, your brain wants to protect you. And I, I remember that vividly when I was a teenager waking up and being like, oh, what's what's going on? What am I doing? Oh, my dad died. That's what's happening. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, that's what I'm dealing with. And then being like, oh, that blissful moment where you just mm. don't know about it. But again, like, it's okay to have that moment. It's okay to remember, like, these things are really, really hard. But the fighting them is what makes it harder. The fighting that of like, I do not want this feeling. I do not want to feel sadness. I want to be fine. I want to be okay. That I want is, to be like the other people. Yeah, I, I want to be like everyone thing, else, walking in the sunshine, mm. having their hamburgers, yeah. not talking about it. But also we know yeah. that's not true. You know, we know that everyone has grief and pain in different ways. You just can't see it. So when you accept that everybody is in this club in some way or other, like ev everybody is, and so there's not like a magic sunshine land that you're banned from. It's just you now see the world in full color, which is there is this horrible gray bit of sadness and there is life and happiness. And now you have to color balance your life and see both of those things and hold both those truths. And that is hard. Mm. It is hard. But there is a beauty in it and there is a peace in it and there is a joy in it that you can appreciate things that then you really understand how much life matters and life means. And it's not to say you have to have this like, 
you know, poignancy about your life. You can just be happy you've got a chocolate bar. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be big and meaningful all the time. But I think anyone who's been through a big grief does under, does feel that way, that like it, it changed their life somehow, in some ways for the better. In some ways not, but in some ways for better. That's been an extraordinary thing I've seen in the few people I know who've suffered, you know, horrific losses that aren't just sort of like, you know, sort of, you know, yeah, died peacefully the at 88. natural order of things, yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and I've noticed almost without exception the way that it's been very hard to bear watching their mm. pain and being in proximity to this this horrific, unnatural, you know, a, a, a appalling thing. And then I've seen them dimensionalize and rise and become magnificent mm. and and you know, and and this is the beauty that you that you're talking about it's not something that we would ever wish for yeah. but it is in there isn't it yeah it's definitely in there and i think that's what people find hard as well of like grief is when we say grief we act like it's one emotion and that's also why i hate the five stages because it distills it to five emotions but it's 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 a mess it's anger and sadness and joy and beauty and like you said this resilience and this brilliance and this magnificence and this horrific patheticness it's all of those things thrown in your face at once and you don't wish it i don't i'm not glad he died when i was 15 but it certainly has become a part of me that is a strength and that has mm. allowed me to open up a world that I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to had he not died when I was 15. Like mm. that that's just a fact. And it's, that's the thing about facts. It's not good or bad. It's just the truth. <laughs> and yeah, I think the other thing, just to quickly say in case anyone's listening, we always say on the show that there's no hierarchy when it comes to grief. Everyone has experienced all things, but child loss is the top. It is the worst. And it is against the natural order of things. And so when you are dealing with that situation, it's not something where there are any simple answers or any kind of, oh, well, there's joy in that. Like, no, I'm not saying all griefs because there are, of course, some griefs that are just horrific. And I would really mm. recommend there's a writer, Jason Green, whose daughter died in horrific circumstances, who did a book, I'm looking for it, um, Once More We Saw Stars and Rob Delaney's book as well, which really deal with the hugeness of that grief. And like you said, the, the unbelievable quality of that tragedy that someone has to find their way out of and also don't always manage to. So, and, and that yeah. is also, you know, you don't have to rise from it as a, a glorious phoenix, but there are other griefs more in the natural order of things where I call it in the book, the fire. And I think most people have experienced that like you do have this weird like you're so vulnerable after grief but you're also so strong because the worst thing has happened and that's how mm. I was as a, a very strange teenager because it was like what could possibly be worse <laughs> like mm. oh you, this boy doesn't like me oh everyone in my school thinks I'm weird like who cares like I was sort of untouchable for about five years and then you become sort of I think a bit more human because you're like oh actually I do care <laughs> oh, shit. Mm. I started caring again but for a while I, I didn't care and that's quite unusual mm. for a, to be a teenager who doesn't care what people think and I think we've all experienced that when we have had a loss. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It, it's it's funny. I think in grieving, you can perhaps at the beginning lose some of your humanity. Yes, yeah. Because yeah. you because it's like all your resources are being sucked down to deal with this kernel of pain, mm. and then you regain it in different ways later. Yeah, and it, you're you are changed forever, and that is very hard to accept. It is, yeah. and it might make you yeah. you know more bitter or more angry or more sensitive, and those things can be really hard to rectify with the person before who seems lighter and happier and like they were carefree but as we know they they still had if you went back to that person they'd be like oh no I'm stressed about this I'm worried about this like 
you only know once you're through the door of the club and you're like, oh, I see, that's what really mattered. It was that. I also think a lot of what also resonated with me and your grief is all the questions Mm. that you still have for the person who died because obviously, you know, with you it was extremely quick and and happened. My father's death was extremely slow, but it still ended in a in a death and there are still unanswered questions you know that and it's so difficult that isn't it because you're basically like why <laughs> but at the same time what would you have thought of this or whatever yeah. you can't ask those questions and it's incredible it is it is like you said yeah it's something you just carry and it does change you you carry it and I I mean I went it took me a long time to go to therapy uh, which is quite common for teenage grievers. Um, just shout out to any teenage grievers listening. If you haven't been yet, don't worry. Um, <laughs> so I didn't go till I was in my 30s. And I something my therapist said, which really stuck with me, is she was, you know, when I had all these questions, she said, do you think you know what he would have said? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, then yeah, that's, you that's kind true. of have the voice still. And that was yeah. like, I mean, I cried a lot that session because I was like, yeah. Oh, because I think it's very easy to feel like you don't have anything. They've gone, I've got nothing. And then you kind of, you you know, you do have the memories and you do, I mean, this is what, it's a very <laughs> intense thing to say, but I'm a very intense person. <laughs> like when it comes to parenting, my belief is like, you just have to love a child so strongly that they still feel it when you're dead. And my dad, mm. for all his faults, he was absolutely insane, but I definitely still feel his love and felt loved after he died and that has made my grief easier than other people I've interviewed who did not who could not conjure that as well and I think that's like you said if you have that voice in their head or something happens or questions or news like you said earlier you said oh I know my dad would have found that funny and like just Mm. knowing that Mm. is yeah is something that we have of the person who's gone of like you know what their reaction would have been. You know what they would have said to you. You know how they would have looked at you. And even though that stuff is, it's really bittersweet because you know it, but you don't have it. And some yeah. people don't know it and don't have it. So it's about sort of grasping the things that you can sometimes. I think sometimes one of the the cruelties of grief is that it can murder memories. Yes, yeah. And, you know, our great friend Gavandra Hodge wrote her remarkable book, oh, The Consequences of Love, oh, about love that book. reconnecting. Yeah with memories of her sister who died aged 10 because she just didn't have them. They'd been swept away in the violence of what Mm. had happened. So sometimes, whether it's therapy, it can be about getting to know the dead person again from Mm. a very different place. And that's why we come back to the condolence letters or people who knew them, you know, and like there aren't many, there aren't a lot of photos of my father as a child, but the ones I have seen, like being able to be like, oh, that was him as a kid. Like Mm. things that obviously as a teenager, I never had those conversations because why would you ask your dad about what they did as a child who cares um, and so yeah I Gavandra came on Griefcast as well and I you know obviously what happened to her was so horrific but the way she now remembers Candy that they make this incredible birthday cake covered in sweets because her sister who died very young really really loved sweets and they make it on her birthday every year and it's like it looks like a pick a mix has vomited onto a cake and it she, tastes like a pick a mix yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love that so much because it's so it's such a beautiful true way to remember that to remember candy and I think that's what we have to look for is the rituals is the ceremonies that are true to the person that you've lost and you know that can be really difficult if you had a bad relationship with that person or it ended very suddenly or they were very young all of that stuff but if you can find a way to something that that you think god they would have bloody loved that (laughs) it's somehow soothing it doesn't bring them back it doesn't take away your grief that's the thing that again I keep saying like you're not looking for 
rituals or therapies that are going to take away the grief. You're looking for things that are going to enable you to hold the grief. And that's a big switch to get your head around sometimes of like, I don't want this feeling to go away, but how can I feel like I can take it? Yeah. I mean, you are proof, I think, that that maybe we don't need to protect ourselves from other people's pain as much as we think we do yeah. because you spend a, you know, a, a large proportion of your life talking about other people's grief <laughs> yeah. and yet you are not rocking in a corner, <laughs> howling, unable to cope with the cruelty of the human condition. Yeah. You know, you're, it, it, as it, it has, I, I suppose, enriched you in some way. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I when I talk to palliative care nurses, it's quite, it was quite strange because I sort of realised that I have the same attitude as them. And I was like, that's quite unusual for a comedian to immediately get on <laughs> with people who work in palliative care. Because I'm like, yeah, yeah, right, everyone dies. And I definitely have a slightly, <laughs> I have a slightly negative view in that if anyone's ill, I'll, I will think they're going to die. And that's my death anxiety. But all I see is resilience. Like all, having interviewed 200 people about their losses, as much as there's so much earth-shattering sadness there is an equal amount of earth-shattering strength beauty joy happiness resilience and it's taken me such a long time and so much therapy to accept that the human brain wants one thing to be true all the time and it's wrong you have to keep telling your brain two things can be true at the same time and I can Mm. miss them and it can be the most painful experience of my life and it can be something that changed my life that you know enabled me to write a book that has opened up other doors for me that has connected me with all these people so you know and I think when you accept that two truths exist about grief what you start to accept is that that's how people work. We're not all good. We're not all bad. We're, we're like, we're everything. And my father is, you know, was a really difficult character, but also had amazing things about him and, you know, was a significant person in my life, despite him being really quite difficult to be around most of the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, right. And yeah, so, you yeah. know, you, you stop looking for things to be so binary and be like, oh, yeah. everyone's good and everyone's bad and grief is awful. And before grief, I was happy. And that's just <laughs> like, that's not life, is it? That's not what you, when you look out in the world, that's not what anything looks like. But it isn't easy to get there. And it's definitely taken me a long time. And I've, I've gone back to therapy several times. So I think, yeah, being kind to yourself in this process of like, some days are easier than others. Some days you don't think about it at all and it's great mm. and you, you know, and then it just hits you in the face and just yeah. being prepared for like, however you feel is all right is the only way I manage it these days. And also I've noticed with some people, you know, admiring their bravery in acknowledging that sometimes they're okay. Mm. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, and I found that an extraordinary thing to behold when someone suffered a terrible loss and they go, um, a friend of mine once said to me and something, uh, the most horrific thing as we discussed Mm. it happened to her and she said, I am proof that we can survive anything. Yeah, yeah. And that's the Jason Green book. With a smile on her face. The Jason Green book, when I interviewed him, similar was like, you know, he said, what happened? What did he use? It was something like what happened to me was almost, was like metaphysical. Like it was beyond Mm. tragedy. And and that here I am. And it, it's a lot to get your head around. And it's a lot, as you said, I also, I'm a big believer in kindness to those around the grieving. Because I think sometimes either you're the epicenter of a grief or you're watching, as you said, someone bear a lot of pain. And it's also like, it's hard to watch people bear pain. Like you are also allowed to need therapy, to need to talk to someone, to struggle when you're seeing your loved ones hold horrific pain because I think we also mm. be like oh well, it hasn't happened to me therefore I must have I don't need any help and actually 
you know, when my husband lost his, um, he's lost both his parents and he was very close to his mum. And when he went through that, it was horrific. And I write about that in the book. Like I was terrible. I was so bad. Yeah. I was like, come on, drop, drop. It's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, chill up. Like we can get through this. You've had six months. Come on, probably time to, because I just, I found it so difficult to watch him be so sad. And then the yeah. big turning point was when I was like, oh, I don't have to fix him. I just have to wait for him to feel a bit better. And that's, mm. you know, and there's another um, a great episode, Kaylee Llewellyn, who's a, a brilliant, brilliant comedy writer. She had six significant losses in one year. And I mean, significant, really, yeah, h- horrendous. And she, I, I quote it in the book because her friend Matt came round and she said, she was just sitting on a sofa staring at a wall. She couldn't do anything else. And Matt just sat next to her. And she said, you know what, just to just to have someone sit next to you while you are unable to speak, talk, move because of the grief you're dealing with. She was like, it was, it was huge. It was life-changing. It was momentous. It was the greatest thing anyone had done for me. And that, again, we come back to what we're saying. Like we feel like what we must do must be Hollywood style epic. It was actually yes. just sitting on a sofa next to someone yes. saying nothing, but reminding them you will not be alone with this feeling. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to cross the road. I'm not going to change the subject. I'm just I'm just going to be here. Presence. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes because perhaps of our own self our own self-esteem, we feel like we're not it's not enough for us just to be there, but actually it really is. Mm. Yeah, that's a big lesson, I think. Yeah. Listeners, <laughs> if you are struggling with grief, you know someone who is or you're just curious about humanity, mm-hmm. then we would strongly recommend slash order you to read yeah. You Are Not Alone by Carrie Lloyd um, and tune in to her podcast, Griefcast, because um, just listen to the woman. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's amazing. I have to say there were so many bits in the book where I was like, yes, I had to stop reading, think about it. It was just, it's just wonderful. And I think oh, exactly like, like Annabelle said, you know, it, and, and as you say in the book, it isn't just for people who've lost someone, but it's, you know, it's so helpful it, for people who are in the proximity which we all are yeah. of people who are going through stuff so yeah, yeah. yeah. well thank so, you so uh, much and yeah the paperback is out on the 1st of February so now you can carry a light copy <laughs> and protect your wrists <laughs> who wants a heavy handbag who wants a heavy handbag we've already got a bottle of water exactly. in there and the tissues exactly. and the wipes and the everything else yeah don't forget the tweezers oh gosh don't I did recently and it was it was not good it was not good um, uh, good luck with your rainbow butterfly oh my god I've forgotten thank you Oh, sorry. <laughs> Off you go. Off you go. When you said Rainbow Butterfly, I was like, oh, oh no, the air dry. Look, I'll send you a picture. I'll send you a yeah, picture. Thank you. I think I'm going to, I think it, I think three attempts and I'll get there. I think that's what it's going to take. And it's quite small. I'll do it while I'm okay. having lunch. <laughs> you know, carry out, it's going to be absolutely fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Thank it's you. Not. Thank you so much. It was really, really nice thank to talk to you. Wonderful to meet you. Thank you so thank much you. and lots of love. Okay. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middle. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams. And to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.